This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before you mash that fast forward button to move to the beginning of today's episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about some ways you can support the show and everything that I'm doing right now. You can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Again, just go on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. It's incredibly important with the way iTunes works. So if you have a second, please leave a rating and or review and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts, you can check out chasethomaspodcast.com. That is on my previous episode, a link to my newsletter, and all my articles that I've written. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas. You can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer, or you can just tell a friend you found this independent sports podcast that they should check out too. Thank you for listening. You're all the best. And I think we've reached the point in this intro where my uncle Darren can play me in. All right, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome to the Chase Thomas podcast. We're recording this early on a Wednesday, fresh off another Braves bullpen implosion. Ender Enciarte is grounding out to first base over and over again, and John Taylor of SI is here and John I'm with you on milk it's refreshing and good in my opinion milk is delicious I stand for milk I fight for milk all the time I love milk so I'm I'm glad there are other people on on team milk with me it's the best and I'm definitely someone who has at least one glass of milk a day and I'm a whole milk person which old roommates Ooh, of mine, that's they were not a fan. They were very concerned about the whole milk status in my life. That is bold because, man, whole milk is heavy stuff. I I used to be 2%. I've now uh, dropped even further down to 1%. I can't I can't tolerate skim milk because it, it's oh, not it's milk not anymore. Milk. It's just chalk water. Yes. Um, it has no milk flavor. Mm-hmm. So 1% is as little as I can go. But, man, whole milk is – that's creamy. That is That is some thick milk right there. Oh, it's – Thick AF, and it's uh, it's very important for me. I I love milk. I love whole milk, especially though. I like it. I just don't understand like why you skimp out on the whole milk experience. I feel like whole milk is the way it's high. It's high in fat, so you know, one percent and two percent are better for you. They're healthier. They're healthier milk options. Yeah. No. So, are you an almond milk or strawberry milk person or anything like that? Do you get too crazy? For starters, those those beverages, almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, all the they're not milk. Like, uh, that's, <laughs> this, this is this is a this is a pet peeve of mine. 
Because they they are not milk. They don't come from a cow. They don't come from anything. They come from nuts. They are beverages. It's uh-huh. it's more. And this is a funny thing. I was just in Canada over the weekend in Toronto, and up there they refer to almond milk, soy milk, all that stuff as beverage, soy beverage, almond beverage. You know, because they are they realize it's not milk. And those that people are so weird. They put milk in bags. Though. Do you just go it's, up to someone like, can I get some almond beverage? That's a little weird. But like, well, here's the thing. Number one, are you are you ever going to order yourself a glass of just pure soy milk with nothing else? No, never. Right. So you're never going to be in a position where you're going to say, can I have some soy beverage? Mm-hmm. I guess if you put it in your coffee, you know, soy that's one thing. Maybe that's a little weird. I, but... I don't understand the appeal of soy milk at all. Like, just put no, water in your it. cereal. Gross. It's water. But I will note that that is one of my that is one of my major pet peeves is that it is not soy milk, almond milk, et cetera. It is soy beverage, soy juice, soy liquid, whatever gross phrase you want to append to it, because that's what it is. It is not milk. There's only one milk, and that is milk. Um, but I am a fan of flavored milk. I do like chocolate milk, strawberry milk, all that stuff. But Nesquik, which I know is is only tangentially milk. Um, so you're but I, I love Nesquik that than uh, Yah- uh, Yuhu's. I don't like Yuhu. I've never, I've never enjoyed the taste of Yuhu. Okay. Although Yuhu is soy based, isn't it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure, but if it is, you may have just. I always thought it was. So thank you for that. If that's the case. But I'm, I'm much more a Nesquik, or you know, just whatever supermarket chocolate milk exists. You know. I'm not entirely sure Um, I've ever actually had Nesquik. I think it was one really? of those things it, it, when I was growing up that it was like my parents and smartly so were like, no, like they just saw the hyperactive bunny on the cover of like, oh, this is going to, you're already hyper enough. We don't need to add some Nesquik uh, cocaine to be, milk into to be your fair, daily life. To be fair to them, it is basically just sugar in milk. It's just yeah. sugared milk. Um, so they were right to realize that it was just going to kill you. Exactly. And you who doesn't look like that, you who just looks honestly like some slop that you would find out of, uh, the sewer drain sometimes after it rained. Like, it's not something that looks appealing. Like if you look at a bottle of like a Yuhu bottle and you took off the Yuhu cover and just looked at what it looked like in a bottle by itself, it's pretty gross. I you you've delved into the world of Yuhu far more than I have. I can't say I've ever studied it so closely. Oh, I um, love to study the history and the aesthetics <laughs> and the ambiance of the Yuhu experience for sure. Well, the one the one I really like, and it's something you I don't think it exists as much in the states, but Canada has it as well, and Europe is big into it. Is why don't you just uh, go to drinkable... Canada, man? This is the second time in five minutes you've brought up the Canada experience versus America. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting paid by their tourism board for every mention. <laughs> In a in a bunch of coins because that that's what they use for money. They don't have paper up there; they have coins. Wait, do they not have but paper they, uh, anymore? Is that a thing? No, they they do they they do. It's just they have a lot of coins. There's you know, they so don't many have paper. Yelling at me right now for my ignorance towards that, but I I felt like they did. But if you told me that they uh, substituted that at some point, I would have believed you. So you could have definitely. Well, they, had well they, you know, you know what the thing is. They don't have a. They, it's not like us where we have a, a paper dollar bill. They have a coin. A dollar coin, the loonie, and a two dollar coin, the toonie. So you just every everything under a five dollar, everything under five dollars just comes in coin denominations. Huh. Although they don't have pennies. So Interesting. Pennies are pretty useless. They, us. they are very useless. So, but they, what they have up there and in Europe as well is a drinkable yogurt. That's which that we kind of have here in Kefir. Say, but isn't that what a yogurt is? 
yogurt, but it's not like it's not market. Like I, but it really is drinkable yogurt. Like you open, you drink it, and it's basically just drinking a yogurt, you know. But I, I'm a big fan of that one. I'm, that, a, I'm a big drinkable yogurt fan. Really, I like yogurt, but I don't want to drink my yogurt. You'd be surprised how how easy it is to drink a yogurt, and okay. it's, it's just better on the go. You don't have to worry about a spoon or that's anything. That's literally but... why they create a gogurt. That's I think that's in the name gogurt, like yogurt on the go. It just sounds wrong, though, <laughs> Gogurt. Yeah. Anyway, I'm uh, glad that we're five minutes into this ostensible baseball podcast and have not talked about anything but milk and yogurt. <laughs> that's what people come here for, man. It's our pre-baseball banter. They, that's, it's, that's a, what... it's the discussion of dairy. Yeah, the discussion of dairy. Um, so you spent time with Matt Kemp, the, the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Dodgers, all-star, starting left fielder who is just having an insane 2018 campaign. And you wrote a great piece on SI that everybody should go read. So go check out John's work there. And uh, what did you learn? You talked to a lot of different people there. You talked to uh, their GM. You talked to Robert. You talked to Camp. You talked to just a lot of different people. What did you uh, glean from your experience uh, putting together the story? Just that it, it really did seem like Kemp... Um, obviously missed LA, wanted to be back in LA, um, certainly never expected to be back in LA. Uh, but this, this whole, this whole thing kind of just feels like one giant happy accident is him returning. You know, it's, it's a sense that the Dodgers never really like the, the trade for him, as everyone knows, was not about him. It was about the contracts moving between Los Angeles and Atlanta. <laughs> Excuse me. So, um, you know, there was I mean, certainly they were, you know, Farhan's lady told me, it was like, Hey, you know, we, we know he could hit. The only question was, you know, the defense and the base running and the, <clears throat> sorry, and the ability to stay healthy. So, you know, they were like, you know, maybe he can contribute, you know, obviously what he's doing now, I think kind of surprised everyone. <clears throat> wow. Damn. Something got stuck in my throat here. It's talking about Matt Kemp gets me all closed up. <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway is that nobody really expected this. And that is just kind of like a it found money in a sense, which is, I guess, to some degree ironic, given that Kemp's, Kemp's trade was all about money and about the contract um, being moved. But I mean, maybe maybe there is something to the idea that, you know, going back to L.A. rejuvenated him in some way. It certainly seems like he got serious in the offseason about training and getting in better shape. And, you know, the amazing thing to me is that he is not just playing better defense like way better defense um but that he's staying healthy you know you're not seeing those same lower body slash soft tissue injuries that um robbed him of so much value over the last few years and kept him on the sidelines i think that to me is the most surprising part about Kemp. he's actually healthy you know i I never thought we were going to see a healthy i'm i'm sure he is i mean i get i get the sense that for him that was the most important thing i just don't know how much he actually thought that that was something that he could even do anymore. You know, when you spent the last three, four, however many years just on and off the disabled list and yeah. unable to run and unable to play in the field. So, I mean, to me, that, that's, that's the kind of, that's the most surprising part. I think is that I, I thought we were never going to see healthy Matt Kemp again. I thought those days were done. I thought, you know, and like not just he's an all-star because sure. Why not? He can like, he could always hit even during those years, except when he was hurt. Yeah. But the fact that he's actually starting the outfield is the nuts part to me. Like, mm-hmm. 
you know, he's actually like capable or something on like the Red Sox this year. You could see something similar to this if they hadn't signed sure, there, Martinez and something like that. Yeah. You could see that. Yeah, there's a weird world, alternate there's a weird unlikely. alternate universe where he's DH yeah. in the outfield. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing. Like the fact that he can actually play the outfield. And granted, like Dave Roberts is taking him out in the late innings, um, partially because, you know, he does have better defenders on his roster and partially because it's about, you know, preservation and, you know, time management with, with Kemp, but just, you know, sparing him a few innings here, a few innings there to keep his legs more in shape. But that's that's the nuts thing to me, is that he is actually playing fine defense. I don't he's never he's never gonna be a gold glover again. Those you know, the days of him being like a ball hawking center fielder are very long gone. But he's actually competent out there again. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it you see it in the numbers, you see it in, in the way he gets after balls, you see it in the routes he's taking. Like he's you know, he's 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 actually capable of playing the position. And that to me is that to me is something I thought we'd never see again. Do you think the Dodgers even thought this was coming when they traded back for him? I feel like this was just absolutely a not thing. Yeah, I I, I 100% believe that nobody in the Dodgers thought he'd be anything more than a, than a potentially somewhat useful reserve. I I yeah. guarantee that. Like, no Which way. Is so fascinating, but it's also why baseball is is fun. Is you just never know when some kind of late career resurgence is on the way like it's just he it's the right situation he's staying healthy and he's still good and you can tell he's definitely rejuvenated in los angeles one thing though i thought was interesting is how demoralized he seemed to be when he got traded to san diego and if you go back and look that this was like early aj preller in san diego and that's when they really went for it right like that one year where they traded yeah that was that was that was the same winter where they got justin upton where they got craig kimbrell yeah. Um, yeah, where they just where Preller went nuts and basically just tried to, you know, trade his way into contention and it just blew up in his face. Which is if you're a player like Kemp still in his prime at that point, like I felt like he would have been excited to join the Padres and join this group that was like trying to win now. Like if you're a player, I felt like even though it didn't work out obviously, that um him being kind of uh I don't want to say like anxious about it but it did seem like he was not thrilled at the idea of joining the Padres even though they were really going forward and he was going to get the opportunity to kind of stretch his wings a little bit because as you pointed out in the piece it's like that was a really overcrowded outfield at that point and he was the centerpiece of this team that was trying to contend for a World Series title that year and I, I don't know I thought it was interesting that he wasn't really all in on that idea but then again maybe he just knew it's the Padres so only bad things can happen here. I don't necessarily know if he was like against the idea of being on the Padres. I mean, when he told me, he's like, you know, it's, it was a it was a new place to go. It's like he had a house in San Diego, so you know, he basically got to go home, so to speak. I think it was more, it was less about going to the Padres than I think it was leaving the Dodgers. And I think just to, you know, the idea like he had been in trade rumors for the for a couple of years already at that point. Pretty much from the moment he signed that extension, I think is when he started popping up in trade rumors because the pre. The pre-Andrew Friedman, pre-current ownership Dodgers were a total mess from from top to bottom. Um, so I think he knew to some degree. It's like okay, I might get moved, but to still just to get just you know traded like that, I think I think that was probably more what he was dealing with. The idea of like you know, all I've done in LA, you know, this is the only team I've ever known. All my friends are on this team, and all of a sudden I'm being traded. You know. Um, I think that was probably what got him more than anything. I, I think he, I think he honestly was, um, at least maybe, I don't know, but I mean, I don't want to 
I don't want to pretend I know Matt Kemp's line of thinking, but I don't think he was upset necessarily about going to San Diego. I think he was just upset the being tr- about being traded at all. Yeah. Um, which I think is why to a degree, maybe you're seeing what you're seeing now is that like, he really did miss Los Angeles. And I really do think that there was a sense of like, I don't want to, I don't think bridges got burned or anything, but I do get the sense that there was just kind of some, there's some, unha- there were some unhappy feelings toward the end of his time in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, and it, this it, is it, kind of an right? opportunity. Like he was the guy they sent out. Like they kept the other ones. Like they had to make a difficult decision on who to keep in the outfield. And they did. Although, I mean, if you, if you look at it, like of the guys they had, it was Kemp, Peterson, Puig, Andre Ethier, and Carl Crawford. Yeah. Um, those were their five guys. And they, were, they weren't going to trade Puig or Peterson because those guys were the cheap future. And Ethier and Crawford were old and had a lot of money still attached to them and were just not. I mean, Crawford got released, what, a year and a half later, if even yeah. that? Like, in eighth year, obviously became a bench back because he couldn't stay healthy. So I don't think any of those guys would have had enough value. Because that's the other thing. It's not it's not just that the Dodgers, they didn't just dump Kemp on the Padres and were like, here you go, take him, we don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, they got Yasmani Grandal back for him. And yeah. that was big. You know, because as Aidy told me, it's like when we took over that team, the catching situation was basically A.J. Ellis, who is, you know, perfectly fine you know, defensive catcher, good veteran guy, obviously a good clubhouse guy, but certainly not someone you want to rely on as a starter. And they felt that there was, you know, room to upgrade that, or at least to add a young cost controlled starter. And they found that in Grandall. So I think that's just its reality. It's not just like they, you know, they were like, Kemp, you're the one we're getting rid of. It's like Kemp, I mean, they didn't tell him this, but like, you know, you were the one who has the most value in a trade because of your combination of age stats and what you can bring back. You know, if they were, if they were, if they were going to trade away Crawford or either, they would have gotten nothing in exchange. You know, they would have had to eat a lot of money and probably would have gotten nothing. You know, Pleager Peterson would have brought back a ton, but, you know, obviously those were the guys they wanted to build around. Yeah. So it really is just kind of unfortunate math for Kemp in that regard. The fact Mm -hmm. that he was the most valuable in a trade of those five is kind of what sealed his exit, so to speak. Um, And I think, too, that that new front office recognized that, you know, there was a lot of potential downside going forward with Kemp given because he'd already started to, to, to deal with a lot of those lower body injuries um, by that point in his career. So uh, I think they recognized too that, you know, the last, cause the two years, I think after that near MVP season he had um, was a lot of time interrupted with injury. You know, you saw the defense start to slip and I think they recognized that too. And we're like, Hey, this might be an opportunity to sell high on someone um, whom we think is only going to decline from here. What do you think he thinks of Ryan Braun? <laughs> I did not ask. Uh, when I go down to DC for the All Star game next week, maybe I'll just can you maybe I'll just him? ask this to see what the I want to get an was, honest but... answer out of him on Ryan Braun because if you don't already know, he lost his MVP uh, run in 2012 to Ryan Braun, who was caught cheating that same year. And I just feel like if I'm someone like like Kemp, that just like his season was so insane, and that was the best year of his career. And then to lose it to Braun under those circumstances, I just feel like that would drive me nuts for the rest of my life. And I feel like that's probably true for a lot of guys because, you know, there is that really kind of vocal anti-steroid group in baseball. Um, you see it a lot of pitchers a lot too, that, you know, that those the guys who get accused of that or at least uh, convicted on the right word, but who, you know, fail tests or gets, you know, that those guys, you know, that's, they're not looked upon too fondly from that point forward. Um, I'm I'm sure if I were to, I'm sure if Kemp were to, you know, 
to bear his heart of hearts. And, and you know, I'm sure he's not a fan of Ryan Braun. Is like you said, Braun. It didn't necessarily steal an MVP from him, but certainly it's a tainted MVP award. Yeah. Um, it was just more that like the way it happened. Like we forget that, but I just that story was insane. And like he threw somebody under the bus. Wasn't it like a post office worker or something? He threw the the. I think it was the courier who yeah. took the samples. If, I, if I'm remembering correctly, and that that, that they were tainted in the story. process of that. Yeah, and then he, I think he accused someone of being anti-Semitic about it because Ron is Jewish. It was very strange. The whole thing, the whole yeah. that that whole thing was just a very aw- uncomfortable, awkward mess. And that's what we remember um, in 2012, and not Kemp's just insane season. And I just feel like, oh yeah, cause he, yeah, you go back and look, and it was just a ridiculous year. He was almost a 40-40 player. Like you, you know, he was very, very good. He was an eight-win player. I don't know off the top of my head if that was the top war total for that season among position players or among all players even, but he was very, very good that year. Um, it was the best year he's had in his career by miles and miles and miles. So it is, it is a shame that that wasn't MVP worthy over, over what Braun did. And especially given what we learned about Braun in the, in the subsequent years. But uh, I mean, maybe, maybe also to some degree, I mean, at this point it's been so long, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if there are all that many hard feelings on. Yeah on Kemp's part years after the fact. Is there any way we can get Ryan Braun traded to Los Angeles this year? That was a rumor for a while, wasn't I it? Know. That Braun was that I, I remember that rumor happen. kicking around for at least a couple of years that the Dodgers were gonna there was one I remember two years ago I think that there was gonna be a Puig Braun swap or maybe that was last year. Mm. Um which would have just shattered the internet I think for a, at least a good solid thirty minutes. But um yeah, I, I, that would have been very funny to see as Braun. I think he might, he might have honestly gotten booed in his first Dodgers at bat, but um, who knows? Uh, I do remember that though, there were there were trade rumors at least for a couple of years there about Braun going to LA because Milwaukee was always trying to get out of his contract, and LA was kind of a place where you could just send a big contract and not have to worry about it. So, who did you enjoy talking to the most for this piece? Um, it's a good question. I think. Kenley Jansen was was at least to not strange, but he was he was very open about the whole thing. It was clear, it was clear, you know, how much he likes Kemp, how much he is, you know, he and Kemp are close, you know, the kind of friends they are. Because he was very, you know, he was very proud of Matt Kemp and very kind of you know defensive of him, you know, trying to make it clear that's like Matt Kemp's a good guy, you know, I like Matt Kemp, you know, it's, and mm-hmm. that was nice to hear. Um, same thing with Dave Roberts, who is is just a. I think it's just you know, I've interviewed him I think a couple times now, and he's always very thoughtful and and a good person to talk to. Um, but yeah, I think it's everyone. Everyone I talked to, I think was very was very nice. Um, you know, I know I know for Kemp too, this must be that that's always something I, I I wonder about when it comes to talking to guys about you know you were bad and now you're good, and it's like whether or not that's a line of questioning that they even like. Or, yeah. or want to but talk you know about you know because about you know it's something that's on their mind but I, I think with athletes it's just that weird sense of like you know i, I don't know if they're necess- i don't know if matt camp is necessarily surprised that he's performing the way he is but i don't think he ever thought he lost that ability because mm-hmm. i think what what he made kind of clear to me is that like look if i get healthy i produce you know yeah. if i'm on the field i'm going to do good things i don't think he, they ever really lose that belief so I think to that degree for Kemp, it's like, you know, the rest of us can sit here and go, oh, shit, Matt Kemp's, you know, he's no good anymore. You know, he's old, he's he's injured, he can't play anymore. 
Whereas he's there like, no, man, if I get healthy, it's all going to be good. Yeah. And I think that is genuinely the belief he has. So I think to that degree, talking about like you were bad and now you're good, you know, from our, from our, from our point of view, it is, yeah, you were bad. Now you're good. And from their point of view is no, man, I was hurt. You know, (laughs) I, I know I can be good. You know, this isn't a surprise to me that I'm playing well because I got healthy. You know, when I'm healthy, I'm better. Um, you know, he lost weight too, isn't, you know, so there's that sense of like, and obviously you, we can see that too. You know, we can look at Matt Kemp and see that he is slimmer than he was in Atlanta and oh, that he is. Look at some of those Atlanta pictures, especially like spring training and early. I, uh, April. I had forgotten. I had, I had forgotten. Like I actually, you know, I did, you know, look at a few before this, when I was doing the story, because I just wanted to you know see it for myself. He was heavy. I had forgotten how heavy Matt Kemp had gone. I hope you said this to his face. You were heavy I did not. in 2017, man. What happened? I did, I did ask him about, because I'm, I'm sure you saw that over the winter, all the reports he'd lost anywhere from 40 to 50 pounds, which is um, an insane number to drop in a winter. And I did ask him, I was like, you know, what was it 40 to 50? And he, you know, he never, he didn't really answer that one. But um, yeah, he was big in Atlanta. I had, I had forgotten about that until I saw those photos, but but I, I do think for a guy like him and for probably any athlete who's kind of made this kind of um, mid to late career turnaround that there is that sense of like, no man, it's not that, you know, it's not like you don't just flip the switch and go from good to bad. I'm sorry, from good to bad or bad to good. You just, you know, we get healthy. We, we're good because we are athletes, you know, we are, we're professional athletes. That we're, that's what, it's almost like that's what we're supposed to do. You know, like Matt camp is like the, the numbers I'm putting up now, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like there's nothing, crazy or special or weird about that so um i i do think i do i do wonder for some athletes if it's just like if talking about that is something that's just kind of weird to them because it's like it's not that big a deal you know it's just yeah. i just got healthy you know because we're always there like and especially now that we have all the access to the stat cast stuff for, for launch angle and exit velocity and all the other stuff when we you know we go to these guys and we pepper them with questions where it's like did you change this did you change that you know do you open up your stance did you change how you're holding you know did you change your you know whatever we're, we're always looking for 15 different reasons for why a guy is you know gone from bad to good or why he's gone from good to great or whatever and these guys are like you know there there are a few guys who are like yeah i didn't make a substantial change you know you have the you know your justin turners and your jd martinez who you know did really change something big in their in their in their approach or their their swing or whatever but for a lot of these guys, it really just, just does just seem like, man, it's not, I didn't do anything crazy. You know, I remember talking to uh, Ryan Zimmerman last year when he was uh, toward the end of his season, which he had a, he had a very good bounce back season. And it was kind of the same thing for him. You know, I asked him, you know, a lot of people had already asked him by that point, you know, is this a launch angle thing? Is this you know, whatever? And he's like, I don't do that. Like, that's not, you know, I'm not aiming to hit a home run or hit a big fly ball every time. It's just like, I just got healthy, you know? My my body is healthier, you know. I'm more able to withstand the rigors of a full season, and I think that probably more than anything makes the biggest difference for these guys. So in that sense, it's kind of weird when you're just asking them, "How did you get good again?" When the answer is almost always, "I got healthy." So, yeah, I think that's just an underrated thing, and we also just don't really know. Um, we can't just look at somebody and we base all the health stuff off injury reports and what they tell us, but it does seem like it always feels like a year removed from a bad year and you just look at stuff and you're like, how do we explain these numbers and this jump? And it's like, Oh, it's actually pretty simple. It's just, Oh, this person's healthy now. And we didn't know they were this unhealthy. Which can be boring because like everybody wants there to be some kind of like big, like everybody wants there to be some kind of like big swing change type thing. Everyone wants there to be like a, 
you know, oh, I learned how to grip my, my change up a little differently, and that's made all the difference. And that can. You know, in because some cases, that really is. It's not interesting to just yeah, say, just more... hey, I'm healthy. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's the thing. It's, it, I guess that's a joke. It's like so many of these stories could just be boiled down to, like, this guy doing better? He's healthy. Like, he, he's not dealing with the 15, 15 million different tiny injuries that professional athletes have to deal with every single day because what they do is just horribly harmful to their bodies on a regular basis. So I, I think that really is what it comes down to. But you're right. It doesn't make for a very dramatic or interesting story, um, which is why the nice thing about a guy like Kemp is, you know, you have that, that kind of narrative right there of like, you know, he's doing this and he's back home. And, he, you know, it's not what you would expect at all in, in any sense. Do you think he keeps it up for the second half of the season or no? I mean, I think there's I mean, you've already seen I think he had a, a kind of a much slower month of June. He hasn't hit that well in the month of July either. I think there probably is some regression coming to some degree. Um, but at the same time, like if he stays healthy, I don't see why he can't at least be a productive bat, you know? Yeah. And the Dodgers kind of need him to be anyway, because um they do not have i mean that, that that was something i wanted to know but i just didn't have the room for is you know with Corey seager down you know this lineup really does need that middle of the order presence and right now that is kemp it's either it's great well until go, gets there, go, of course. go back into into spring training and tell dodgers fans the two guys who are going to carry this team carry it offensively are matt kemp and someone named max muncie mm-hmm. that's baseball is just the damn best you know max max muncie future home run derby star <laughs> he's like what is, everybody is, hoped Joey Gallo would would turn into. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy with what Joey Gallo turned into because Joey Gallo is a freak of nature. He has more home runs than singles in his career. That's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I I understand how that's possible given the way he you know given his whole you know swing and the fact he gets you know, the pull happy hitter gets shifted on like probably more than any other hitter in baseball. Um. But it's it's still just crazy to me that Max Muncy is a thing. Yeah, I I still what a name. I I it's a great name. And just it's a he's a great player. I mean, you look at him; he's shaped like a refrigerator, mm-hmm. and like he's clearly like he 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 has that look about him of just like quad A player. He's exactly the type of guy you would expect to see mashing in some triple A lineup somewhere or in like Japan. But yet here he is with like twenty or twenty one or however many home runs it is by the All Star break, which is crazy there's yeah you know i know that there's you know the max monthly stories have, have you know they've come out now we've had a few different places you know tell his his story i mean the guy was unemployed last year you know he was trying desperately to get back into professional baseball now here he is arguably the dodgers best hitter right now it's very evan gas-esque you know, from a couple years ago it is it is the evan, I, I, you know the evan gas actually a, a story that you were able to read in the pages of sports illustrated um way back in the day El Oso Blanco and his whole incredible, mm. like really strange, just path to baseball or to, to professional baseball rather. But yeah, Max Muncie, obviously not as dramatic, you know, definitely not as definitely not as um, equal of a nickname. I don't think he's going to get one. But yeah, that that same you just, and it was the nice thing about baseball. You just get stories like that all the time. Just guys who are just able to do stuff like that. And you know, who knows? Maybe maybe this is the only year Max Muncie ever does this. But hey a pretty cool year right i would agree um how excited are you for the cincinnati reds to increase their payroll in 2019 is that a, is i did see that was a thing they want to do i'm not sure how what is uh, here, my thing with the reds is 
and I wrote about this at the beginning of the season when they fired um, Brian Price, mm-hmm. that this it's you know that this front office, this ownership group, you know whatever combination you want to put together the two, doesn't really seem like they know what they're doing. Like they've made some nice like getting Eugenio Suarez was a great move, especially for the broken down corpse of Alfredo Simone. Scooter Jeanette uh, turns out in retrospect a great move. Um, you know they've made some good pickups offensively, but then they've no they've shown zero ability, zero like knowledge of how to build a pitching staff. That rotation has some pieces, but is bad. That bullpen has some pieces, but is bad. Like, what is increasing the payroll really going to do for them when you look at what the decisions they've made and how badly the majority of them have gone? What is what is spending more money going to accomplish, and who are they going to do that with this offseason? What they need is pitching. Yeah. Who are the pitching targets they're going to they're going to lavish money on this 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 winter? Um, re-signing I, 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 <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't be so hard on the Reds for this because one thing I've I've knocked them for for a while now is that they are in year four or five or whatever it is of a constant rebuild where they're just not trying. They're not making the barest of effort in free agency or in acquiring talent um, or at least in acquiring major league talent, you know, certainly picking up prospects, you know, but then, so it is good, I guess, in that sense to see them be like, okay, we're going to start spending. Like we, we want to spend more money. You know, we want to bring in free agents. I, that is good. I would just, if I were a Red fan, be worried that these are not necessarily the guys you would trust to spend that money. You know, that you would want, you know, what, what exactly have they done in the last few years that's, that's made you feel comfortable about them, you know, suddenly increasing that, that payroll by whatever it is they want to increase it? On the whole, or on the, in, a general, in a general sense, yes, I would like teams like the Reds to spend more money, to be more active, to actually make an effort instead of just, you know, lying down and accepting 95 losses every season. I would just worry that this isn't the front office group you want doing it. But, hey, you know, they do have a few wins in there in terms of player development and acquisition, maybe they'll prove me wrong. I just, and I would, I guess I would just need to take a better look at the 2019 free agent class beyond, you know, beyond the obvious guys. Um, well, and I, we should obviously, I'm going to listen well, to the, the, the that makes it. Well, cause I would say that the, the thing is like, they're obviously not going to go after like Manny Machado or Bryce Harper. Oh, yeah. Like that, those are not the guys they're going to go after. So they're, they're going to be more in that middle tier. So all right, let's, let's, let's hear these names. So I'm looking more at the starters because like they're, Middle of the infield, as you touched on a little bit, is actually really deep. Scooter Jeanette's obviously there. We have Suarez. Shortstop, obviously not a great situation, but it's well, basically the, the, the weakest the part. You have Barnhart at catcher. You have Votto at first. So, like, it's a really like potent infield. Like It's not... Although I will say, Jeanette's a free agent after the year, right? Yeah, but he would or, They have to re-sign him, right? I don't know, because I mean, if they... I mean, that's a guy where I would, I would imagine that like his value is probably going to be pretty decent... Well, I would say it's going to be decent around the trade deadline, but there are so few contending teams at this point, or at least contending teams that are in a position where they need to add something because it would make a difference to like, like you look at the Indians, like they need bullpen help and they're probably going to go get it, but they're also in a pretty safe position where they're, they've already won the AL Central. AL Central's over, you know, yeah. like, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to so add Iglesias from the Reds. Sure. But like, that's kind of the thing where it's like, it's, it's, it is both a seller's market because there are so many like bad teams looking to get rid of players, but also not a buyer's market, or but also not a seller's market because there just aren't that many interested parties buying at this point, um, or at least not willing to part with. I think what those teams would want, 
you know. But anyway, who are the starters who are going to be available this winter? Dallas Keuchel. Okay. He'll only be 30, and he's had a slight down year, but he still has like a 3.95 ERA. He's fine. Like, I I think J.A. Happ feels like a future red that gets overpaid, like the Hummer Bailey situation or something like that, who was making like 20-something million dollars this year. Um, Drew Pomeranz, can I interest you in some Pomeranz and his 6.81 ERA? In a, he feels very red. In a, light, in a lightly used, uh, mostly new condition Drew Pomeranz. There you go. Gio Gonzalez, who I've watched way too much of this year, who is still... Boy, a, a, a lot of these names just scream Cincinnati Reds, you know? I'm only giving you the ones that feel Redsy to me. Patrick Corbin. I think Corbin might actually be too good for the Reds. Yeah. Um, Charlie but Gonzalez. I could Charlie see Charlie Morton, Morton like getting probably... signed by the Reds and immediately going back to the Charlie Morton of old. But like to me, it's just Gio Gonzalez feels like a very red choice because he is a guy who has the potential to be better than he is, has had at least one good season in his in his last few years, will probably ask for more money than most contending teams are willing to pay, and is really better suited to being like a number three or number four starter on a good team, but will end up being like a number one or a number two on a bad team. So I, I can really see the Reds making that, especially because that's another one where they can, you know, you could point him at your fans and be like, we got an above average pitcher. Just don't look too closely at the numbers. Tyson you know, someone Ross. like a Dallas Keuchel, Tyson, Tyson Ross has been on the Reds, hasn't he? He's been on everybody. I feel like Tyson Ross is bouncing around. I like Padres, A's. He's, he's our, he's our new Edwin Jackson. Yes. Yes. Um, Jeremy Hedges. Tyson Ross, I mean, <laughs> I 100% sure Helix has been on there. Every, so many, like, once you get into that lower tier of starters, like, you're, you're naming guys who have just, even if they haven't been on the Reds, I'm sure they've been on the Reds. Because mm-hmm. they've really Ariano cycled. this. definitely been a Red, right? I'm, that, that's another name where it's like, I can easily see him in a Reds uniform, and I would be shocked if he had actually not been. But this is, this is a fun game, I want. This is a fun game now. It's like, has this mediocre to bad pitcher been a Red? <laughs> Or a Baltimore for all Oriole. these guys, ooh, that's that's a really tough one too. Because Helixson and Liriano has Liriano been an Oriole? I think so. Helixson has one hundred percent been an Oriole. I remember oh, he was yeah. an Oriole last year. I think yes. Um, I'm mildly surprised Tyson Ross hasn't been an Oriole. But then again, he would probably never be able to pass an Oriole physical. So, are we learning that like Reds Ross... might be Baltimore East now? Ooh, no, because they're actually like good pieces, like. In, in Cincinnati, I think. Like, okay. he both good, both good, like, established pieces and like, Votto and Jeanette and Suarez and good younger pieces and like, Amir Garrett and um, Michael Lorenzen and um, Jesse Winker and Scott, no, Scott's definitely not young, but um, where the Orioles, you look and they have Machado and you just, you so quickly, almost immediately run out of pieces on the Orioles where you're like, yeah, this guy will be part of the next contending Orioles team. Jonathan There's Shoot. nothing there. It really is when you look at the, it is so depressing that that team is basically a nuclear fallout site. It's, it's kind of scary how bad they are. Buck Showalter, next Reds, G, uh, Reds uh, manager. <laughs> I probably think this is probably the end of Buck's line. I, I have to okay. imagine that he's not going to sign up for more bad baseball. I mean, he's, Bucks one is in his mid sixties at this point. I, I would not be surprised if he decides he, this is it for him. What was the last? I'm sure he was, was Leland when he left. Finally, 
104, somewhere so. around there. Mm-hmm. Can the Reds? I mean, I, I'm sure. Can the Reds call Sparky Anderson? Is he still around? I think he died. I'm almost 100 percent sure he died. Let it'd me. Be, uh, let me. See. It'd be kind of crazy if he hadn't died because he was like 80 years old in like 1985. Mm-hmm. 2010. Yeah, he's been dead for a while. Okay, <laughs> good. He's <clears throat> successfully established the Reds should be managed by a dead man. <laughs> Would you really notice a difference, though? Would you really? No, no. Okay. I mean, credit to Jim Riggleman, um, who has been around baseball since roughly the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. um, for making <laughs> and this not red good, team. By the way, His no, but he's been, like this red team is, is pretty bad. But this red team has actually played like it, I don't want to say they played well under him because they're still a bad team. But like you saw yesterday, they put up seven runs on the Indians in the in the last couple innings that game and came back for a win. Granted, the Indians bullpen is a tire fire. They won but a hey, against the Braves. They're playing hard. You know, yeah. they're it, it's it's kind of like what we saw from the Tigers earlier this year, except the Tigers have now uh, slid into where we expected them to be. Like you, okay. if you just if you looked away these last few weeks and looked back at the Tigers, all of a sudden the Tigers are like twenty five games under five hundred. I have a great uh, question for you. Who do you think is all right, Buck Showalter or Jim Riggleman? Oof. Jim Riggleman. You're correct. By three years. Walter's right. only 62. I think he's got more years. Oh, really? Yeah, let's get Showalter in Cincinnati next year. Let's do it. The thing, the thing is, like, for Buck, I feel like the team you'd be, he would end up with, I don't really see, like, a, a stats-oriented front office hiring Buck. I don't really see, like, and obviously you look at the contenders as they are now. None of those teams really look like um, they're going to let go of their managers anytime soon. You know, I mean... Maybe like I, it, I think in the Nats miss the playoffs. Maybe Dave Martinez. Um, How many managers do they need? Let's just keep doing <sighs> this once a year. Just new manager every year. That's the Nationals' way. But I, I think the problem with Buck is not the problem necessarily. But what he might run into is that like the best he might be able to do is like a kind of middle tier team, like a maybe a Twins. If they don't, if they get rid of Paul Molitor, which. I would not be terribly surprised given the season they're having. Yeah. Or um, a Colorado, maybe a team that's not definitely not a contender, and it to be a more veteran team too. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of this is all just spitballing off the top of my head. But that that's the thing with Buck is I, I just don't see him being given the reins to an actual contender because none of those actual contenders are going to be looking to change managers this offseason. I don't think unless one of them is a soon to be uh, manager free agent, but. And I don't know if Buck, excuse me, I don't know if Buck wants to, you know, do it like Ron Gardenhire did, um, and take over a clearly rebuilding team, you know, and that's what he's had to do, you know, with this. And I don't know if he wants to go from one bad team to another, um, unless it's like Gardenhire did and just go get out of the league for a couple of years, you know, take a break, and then maybe come back a little more refreshed. Because the other thing is, I would not be surprised if, because the Orioles are on pace to lose what 115 games or something. Mm-hmm. You know, if if this is really is a team that loses 105 plus. I would not be surprised if Buck is just like I need a break, you know. I I, I need to, or he you know, because that, that kind of get another job where he can win again because this is going to be bad for his uh, baseball reference page. It is, but I, think, I just feel like there's something so morally, mentally, emotionally dispiriting about being the manager of a team that loses that much that you almost just kind of need to take a year off just for your own sanity. 
I don't know. Um, and it, I also, are we sure that's worse than being the manager of the Twins this year? I feel like it's more just like I can't like the stories that Showalter is going to have, and just like knowing that your season's over in April feels less demoralizing than being like the Twins manager, where you're like, oh my. But God. at least, but at least Paul Molitor can tell himself like you know there there are some like the Twins. Yes, the Twins are underperforming, but there are good pieces there. You know what what is what does Buck have? I and just knowing just, every day you go to the ballpark that you're going to lose unless you're playing the Yankees for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> right. It is very, it is very, very funny to me that the, you basically attribute the three and a half game gap between the Red Sox and the Yankees in the standings and the AL East uh, to the Baltimore Orioles who have a winning record basically against only the Yankees. Incredible. Um, it's, it's really something. I will make a prediction on the Reds 2019 team right now. All right. It will include either Adam Jones or Nick Markakis to a ridiculous long-term deal. I don't think either. I think I can see either of them getting like a maybe two or three years. Yeah, I could see five. I really would like to think that like every front office is just kind of realized at this point that, you know, once a guy gets to like 32, 33, you're just not going to give him anything more than three years. But boy, Adam Jones has a real Cincinnati Reds feel to him at this stage of his career. Yep. I think I think two. the only thing that would probably stop that is that the Reds do have, um, they do have some outfielders already kind of there, you know, that they don't really need to invest in that, and that Billy Hamilton, for as bad a hitter as he is, and he is just a ludicrously bad hitter, um, is just flat out fantastic defensively in center field, so that they mm-hmm. don't really. But I could, I think Jones, because he's old, because he's declining, but also because he's that kind of veteran presence that a team like Cincinnati will talk itself into as like a, he will make a difference to our young team kind of thing. But boy, I, that is, that is a good prediction. Adam Jones to the Reds. That is a good prediction. And the last thing I'll say on the Reds, and then we'll move on to some all-star snubs. The Reds are paying Ken Griffey Jr. $3 million this year. It's funny when the whole Bobby Bonilla day thing happened that like multiple people point out, it's like, you know, it's not just the Mets who have all this money deferred. The crazy one I'd never heard of until I think, so I forget who at the athletic wrote about it was that the Braves still owe or was it Bruce Sutter? Yeah. I think it was Bruce Sutter, like millions of dollars for the next, like, yeah, he was a reliever back in the eighties. Bruce Sutter. I wasn't even alive. I have no idea who this is. I'm looking this up. Bruce Sutter. Yeah, the Braves still owe him millions of dollars over the next like a decade plus for a, basically a three, two or three bad seasons he had for him toward the end of his career. Does that they uh, just, they transfer just... over to new ownership? Because ownership changed, obviously, between those years. Does the new ownership have to pay this guy? Like, is that how that works? Or yeah, I think because I think when, when one... Pay? No, I think it's when one, when, when a new group of owners buys a team from another, I mean, like you saw with the Marlins, they just take over everything. They, they inherit all the bad contracts, or all the contracts, good and bad. Interesting. Because um, that is just what the team owes. Because the thing is, like, I'm sure it wasn't like Ted Turner was personally paying Bruce Sutter. I think it was, you know... <laughs> that would it be was really the, funny. <laughs> it was the Braves. And so once new ownership bought the Braves, that became their responsibility. But... Um, yeah, that is every everyone owes deferred. I mean, you look at the kings of deferred money, the Nationals. They're going to be paying some of the guys on that team well into like the twenty forties. You know, Max Scherzer is still going to be drawing checks from that team like thirty years from now. So it, it's 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 not surprising. It's a thing that happens. You know, I, look, I'm I'm as, I'm as much for a lol Mets as anyone else, but 
Every team does it. Every team has their embarrassing old guy they're still paying money to. I'm not surprised that the Reds still owe Griffey money. I do like the idea that Ken Griffey Jr. is still drawing major league paychecks. That is funny to me, but, you know, everyone's got to deal with it. Shout out to Griffey. Um, Were there any all-star snubs besides the obvious of Blake Snell who was going to get in regardless? And I love the the just kind of the conspiracy theory that Trevor Bauer got put on so MLB didn't have to deal with his tweet fallout that would uh certainly in it would certainly come to fruition if Brett Bauer got left off for Blake Snell like he would tweet something about the the incident that had occurred but um do you like Chris Archer was very upset about it but do you think it was like that gross and that just over the top that he didn't get on because if you look at the list I mean there's a lot of good starters in the AL and it's not like that's kind of yeah. That's kind of the thing. It's like you look at who's on there, and it's like, yeah, Blake Snell deserved to be on the all-star team. I don't think there's any – in an ideal world, like, he would have made it. Like, I don't really think there's any – there should be any question about that. But when you look at, one, how many good starters are already there, and two, the fact that every team needs one representative, stuff like that's going to happen, you know? Can we talk about why that's it's a, a thing? Why is there still the one representative rule? I do support it to the idea that it means that every fan base has a reason to watch. Although – if you're an if you're a if you're a Tigers fan, are you really gonna tune into the All Star game just for the chance that Joe Jimenez pitches like the sixth inning? No. Probably not. Yeah. I don't think you care. I really I know that there are some Tigers fans. I know there's some Tigers fans out there who are obviously very happy for Joe Jimenez and I'm happy for him too. It's a really it's a really nice, you know, the guy's made an all star team already and it's you know, it was very clearly a very emotional thing for him, which is great. But nobody really, nobody outside of like some diehard Tigers fans cares about that. You know, to the rest of us, when they, when they, when the camera hits Joe Jimenez, they're going down the line of American League All Stars and they're introducing them on Tuesday. Ninety-nine percent of people watching and it's squint to go, "Who the hell is this?" But it's also and just so, weird because like guys like Whit Merrifield had no shot, and Salvador Perez gets on again, and he's had a pretty bad year. And it just, it, when you look back, I just feel like this is why you should discard a lot of. Uh, all-star appearances um, when you're debating certain players and their careers and everything else. Just like the one representative role is just, it It just, I don't know. I just don't like it. I don't like the idea that you just get on just because you're on this team and we have to it's, put somebody on. I don't like it. I just It's, it, it's a pity vote. It's a pity yeah. vote. And I really, I do think for as much as I do like the idea that like every fan base gets somebody there to root for, I think in the end, if it's an all-star game and it really doesn't matter anymore, and it never should have, um, just take the best players. You know, I think more important to the more important than the idea of every fan base getting one person to root for is having an event where you have best players, yep, the most known players, so you can market at the event not just as like you know. Because that's what it's going to be. It's going to end up being Joe Jimenez pitching. All-star game where they like have to take off Steph Curry because they have too many Warriors in the team, and they just put on like De'Aaron Fox from the Kings to represent. Like it's well, just, doesn't does the doesn't every, does every league's All Star uh, does every sports All Star uh, system have a one player from every no. team rule? Is that not a thing? I, I don't no. I don't know how NHL. I'm not 100 percent certain on, but NBA and NFL no. And NFL, it's just the okay. purple, and it's just it doesn't matter anyway. But um, yeah, well, which is the funny thing is like we're talking about the it's it's funny the only the the two things in baseball 
the two things that are that every sport has, but that seem to have the most conversation purely in a ba- in baseball, the All Star Game and the Hall of Fame. Those two things in the other three leagues, nobody cares about. Nobody cares about who makes the All Star teams or Pro Bowl or whatever. In the other three sports, there's never any like hardcore debate about whether or not this guy's a Hall of Famer in the NFL or the NBA. But for baseball, holy shit, that's a whole like. <laughs> You know, I think baseball fans are the only people who care about stuff like all-star snubs. And yeah. certainly they're, they're the most vocal and like, like already, like for some reason, I think because Yadi Molina just got announced as a, as an NL all-star reserve to replace uh, Buster Posey, I think, you know, that, that inevitably starts up the Yadi Molina hall of fame conversation again, which is the most already the most tired hall of fame conversation that's ever happened. So it's, it's, it's actually a good, like, union of two two things baseball fans care deeply about but that no one else cares about in the all-star game in the hall of fame um it, it is it's kind of weird to me how much people i guess put especially the whole idea of like snubs at the all-star game it's like everybody makes it yeah. by the time the all-star game actually happens like there'll be 90 all-stars i think or something around there from from the two leagues combined that's like a fifth of the league will be an all-star you know and nobody's what I just find what I find so funny about the week between or the week or so between the announcement of the All Star teams and the actual All Star week and festivities and all that is that it's just one constant stream of like oh okay so this guy is no longer on the All Star team but is still going to be there but he's being replaced by this guy who I'm not going to remember like like the whole like Labor Torres making the All Star team which he should have won't play because he's on the DL so now Jed Lowry's going to be on the All Star team instead but they're both going to be there. And it's like, okay, now I, I, you just have to remember so many new names in a, in a point where it's just like, nobody's, nobody ends up getting snubbed, you know? Yeah. Almost never does anyone who truly deserves to be at the All-Star game not end up at the All-Star game. I would just, you like know, maybe, maybe you get voting. one guy a year. Fan voting is just, I don't like, there's been a lot of like, oh, let's stuff the ballot for this guy. I didn't, I've never understood that line of thinking, even if you are a fan of that team, like, there was, I think, Yoan Camargo was in third place for third baseman at one point. Dan Swanson was in second for shortstops, and it's just like, I don't really understand that line of thinking because, do you really want to see someone who's just not very good? Um, and the well, the funny, like, the funny what? thing, I don't understand that. The funny thing to me about that is like, if you're a Braves fan, like you can watch Johan Camargo and Dan Swanson play literally every day. Yes. Why do you want to see them at the All Star game? Like, I, I mean, it's I guess it's funny to a degree, like. I remember back in the day when I was, there was a Red Sox match report I was a part of back in ooh, way back when, like 2008, 2009. And we decided we were all going to make a concerted effort to get lasting millage of the nationals onto the all-star team because um, we just really found that funny. Didn't work, but I don't know. I mean, I think you, if you look at the, the, the starting rosters for both teams, I think the fans got it right pretty much across the board. There's no one who jumps out to me as like, Oh, that's just the wrong choice or clearly that fan base just put this like voted this guy in like i am just off the top of my head i can't think of a position where the starters are somewhere and like no that's wrong you know i mean argue how argue however much you want that like an nl outfield of bryce harper matt kemp and nick markakis is just bizarre and it really is it's a weird trio of players but i think that's cool i think it's cool that you have a superstar in harper a guy who's never made it before in Marcakis and who's you're very deserving of the honor this year and a rejuvenation case in Kemp. It's like, Oh cool. This guy again, you know, 
it sucks for Lorenzo Cain, who probably should have been a start over at least one of those guys. Yeah. But hey, you know, I, I, I think there are definitely some years where fan voting gets it wrong. Like when you have like Royal fans for two straight years there where they just, you know, basically stuff the ballot box. Um, and certainly, the, you know, there's a tendency toward, I think with the fans toward older established players, you know, that they recognize as opposed to guys who are having, you know, I mean, you see that in, um, I think like, I guess you can see that in the NL outfield a bit, um, kind of gravitating toward the established names a bit. Um, but I, you know, but at the same time, like AL fans voted for Wilson Ramos over Gary Sanchez. Not only is that the right call, that's a surprising thing. I would have figured almost no matter what Gary Sanchez would be in the, would be the quote unquote starter who wouldn't end up starting because he's hurt. But, um, I, don't know, I, can, I can go either way on fan voting. I think sometimes they get it wrong. I think this year they got it pretty much entirely right. Um, it seems like, honestly, the biggest controversy was the player vote. Because um, they, they did that, I want to say, two or three weeks ago, which is probably too early to be doing it. But, you know, I, I, I just have a hard time getting too worked up about any aspect of the All-Star process because it fundamentally means nothing. It means something to the guys playing, obviously, but to the fans, it really, it, it just doesn't mean anything. You know, the, the game doesn't matter. It's just a fun exhibition. And mm-hmm. I will say that if there is one thing about the All-Star game, and I've, um, this is kind of a based off a round table thing that we did at SI for a weekly thing we do on Mondays called nine innings, where we just kind of, it was kind of like a look around the league from various people. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a round table that was like, you know, how would you change the All-Star game? Like what, what change would you make? And to me, AL versus NL is a format that just doesn't really capture the imagination anymore because you have so much increased interleague. Like these matchups aren't special, you know, I remember back in like the well, all-star games of my youth, Mitch Moreland and Jose Abreu out of the all-star game is something I'm 100% here for. <laughs> but like, I, I remember obviously the all-star games of my youth. And of course, everything from when I was younger is what, what I think is good and right. Um, as is the case with everybody else. But, like, you know, those were cool matchups, like Pedro Martinez against Mark McGuire, because, like, holy crap, you're never going to see that during the regular season. Or you're only going to see it maybe once. Now, like, you see these matchups pretty regularly, you know, because of, because of year-round interleague. So I, I, was, I was, my suggestion was we switch the format either to, like, Team USA versus Team World or something, or to uh, what the NBA does, which I think is a really great idea, of having two captains do a draft. I, I love that idea. Sandlot style All-Star game. I think that'd be a ton of fun. So that is the one thing I will get worked up on about the All-Star game is I think the format, the current format is boring or is stale. Um, and it could, and I think the NBA format is probably the way to go for the future. As long as they care. televise the draft. I can't like muster up any sort of genuine care <laughs> for the all-star games like i just I, i'm not gonna watch it so for me to pretend that it actually bothers me certain players didn't get on and, and that's the thing like i i say that the format i say that the format sale but at the end of the day i don't like you like you i don't care you know it's it's just it's a it's a cool i guess it's cool i mean i you know may I or may not just watch do, it just vote so. i'd rather just do the voting and then no game that would be more interesting to me. Like, just do a player and like managerial and GM vote, and then um, that be it. So it's almost like the like the all team for the NFL. Yeah, or the all NBA team. We're just like here are the best guys. Okay, we're done. Exactly. Now. That's it. That's what I would like. I mean, I, I'm I'm fine with the idea of a game because I think I think if anything, I don't know how MLB could do it, or I don't have any suggestions for MLB on it, but I do think 
the all-star game is probably important in terms of capturing like a younger audience, you know, of like, Hey kids, look at all these stars, you know, look at all these cool players, get to watch them do something cool or whatever. You know, well, I don't idea. know how here's, a, here's how we spice this up, John. I have the idea. Right. So since right. a third of the league is tanking, what if we uh-huh. put, we like found the best players from that third, put them all on one team and they face the Astros. Ooh, kind of like the way that, like the MLS does their all-star game, where they have the best from MLS play on internet, play a, one of the European super yes. teams. Let's do that. That, I mean, honestly, to me, the real all-star game is the World Baseball Classic. Okay. That to me, that to me feels like the truest spirit of the all-star game because it's, it's fun, but it matters. And it just showcases all these great players from all these different places. Um, I wish the world baseball, I mean, I don't know if maybe doing it every year would kind of remove some of the fun of it, but I really do wish, I know people have shot the idea around that the, that instead of an all-star game, the all-star week should just be a, a mini WBC just with like the U S the Dominican, Venezuela and Puerto Rico. Yeah. And maybe it may, well, maybe work in a couple other teams, but like, and just have them do a quick round Robin tournament during all-star week. And obviously the MLBPA would never, ever agree to this, but I don't know. To me, to me, that just feels like the closest thing to what I would have kind of like in an ideal universe have the all-star game be. It's just something where these guys can actually get like, cause you know, the, once you bring like national pride into it, and especially for like the Dominican team and the Venezuelan team and the Puerto Rican team, you know, cause that, that's, that I think is what takes it to a level of like actual, you know, cause then you can get invested in, nobody's going to get invested in whether or not the AL or the NL wins this year. You know, nobody cares. Um, but people will actually care if it's like, oh, hey, Team USA, you know, that's that's something. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But, um, but like you're right. In the end, getting worked up over the All Star Game is just not worth anyone's time. You know, snubs, format, who who votes. It's it's just an exhibition in the end. You know. Yep. John Taylor, thank you as always for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I'm glad we were able to discuss such weighty matters as drinkable yogurt. Mm-hmm. Everything comes from always with, Yeah. Always what the people want to hear is about <laughs> dairy. <laughs> For sure. So we can find you on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. We can read you at SI.com slash MLB and read the piece we talked about at the beginning of today's episode on Matt Kemp and all of John's great work. So do all that. And John, we will talk again soon. Thanks for having me, man. All right. On the line right now, former New York Knicks and Toronto Raptors general manager, now athletic director, Glenn Grunwald. Glenn, how are you? I'm doing very well, Chase. Uh, Just enjoying the summer. So is there a difference between director of athletics and athletic director? Because your new title at the university you're at in Canada is uh, director of athletics. And I thought about that and I didn't know if there actually was a difference. Uh, well, there is. My, my exact title is director of athletics and recreation. So I'm also responsible for running the intramural programs and the instructional classes and the uh, and all the other facilities that are open to students generally. And like our summer camps, which are going on right now for children. Are you enjoying this new endeavor for you? Oh, yes. You know, I'm working at McMaster University, which is in Hamilton, right on Lake Ontario between Buffalo and Toronto. 
And it's a great, great university, uh, you know, one of the top 100 ranked universities in the world. And we've got a, a very good athletic program, good facilities, and uh, we're doing lots of uh, fun stuff here. So it's, it's fun to work with the young folks. It keeps you young. And you do your best to support them to make sure that they have uh, good experiences while they're with us. What made you want to get into this line of work now? Um, I, you know, I had played basketball at Indiana University many, many years ago now and uh, had a great experience there and, and always felt that that would be a, a fun environment in which to work, to work alongside young people and try and have them reach their potential. And, and so I've had several opportunities, uh, but uh, the last time after the Knicks, uh, there was an opening here. I knew some people from Hamilton, um, including Ron Foxcroft, uh, the founder and owner of the Fox 40 whistle, which is the first peerless whistle mm-hmm. that all the NBA referees use. And uh, we uh, managed to make a, a good fit. So it's, it'll be four years, September 1st for me here in, in, in McMaster. That feels incredible that it's already been that long since you've uh, been away. It, does, it feels like just yesterday you were running the Knicks. Yeah, yeah, time flies, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, things <laughs> have does. changed a lot since then. So, uh, I I suspect uh, being the director of athletics at McMaster is a little bit different than uh, running the New York Knicks. It feels a little different to me. Oh yeah, substantially different job, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've worn a lot of different hats, and just doing some research on you, I didn't realize just all the different titles and just kind of career path that you've kind of had um, thus far. I mean, you've been a corporate attorney, you've been a GM, you're now a director of athletics. You've done a lot of different things. Um, which have you enjoyed the most thus far in your career? You know, I've enjoyed all the jobs I've done. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I have to say it's the most fun uh, winning in the NBA, uh, just because, okay. uh, there's so much, uh, other things that go on with it and, uh, and it's so difficult to do. So, uh, yeah, no, I think, uh, all my jobs have been, been pretty darn good. Fortunately, I've been very fortunate to work in a lot of good places and, uh, but yeah, winning in the NBA, that that's probably the best. What made you want to get into, uh, the front office for NBA teams? Is that something you want to do as a kid or did it just kind of happen when you, um, uh, when you got into adulthood and everything. Yeah, it just kind of happened for me. I was a corporate lawyer at a big firm in Chicago called Winston and Strawn and worked on a number of interesting uh, transactions there. But uh, one of our clients, Peter Bino, uh, had just finished uh, being the, uh, the head of the Illinois Sports Facility Authority, which built the new baseball stadium. That was new back then in the late 80s uh, uh-huh. for, for the Chicago White Sox. And he then decided that he wanted to try and buy an NBA team. So I worked on that deal with Peter and another attorney named Joe Walsh. And we worked uh, pretty hard. First, we chased the New Jersey Nets for a while. And they couldn't agree whether they wanted to sell or not. That's back when they had seven owners. But we wound up purchasing the Denver Nuggets. And and then after the acquisition closed, uh, Peter asked me to join him in in Denver to be sort of his right-hand man. So... We went out there in 1989, and I worked with him and Peter for about four years. Uh, and then we're working in the front office. And you know, the NBA was substantially different back then, and mm-hmm. changed a lot. But uh, you know, there there's, wasn't the same sort of uh, career emphasis, I guess, in sports management that there is now. Do you think it changed for the better? Or do you still keep up with everything? Are you uh, a big fan of where the game has gone in recent years? 
Oh, I think so. I think it's, uh, you know, obviously one of the best marketed sports in the world, but it also has, you know, compelling, uh, athletes that are incredible to watch and great teams and not so great teams. And, uh, you know, the scoring has improved the three point shots, uh, rise in prominence has certainly uh, changed the way the game's played. Some of the rule changes, but I think in general, it's very watchable and entertaining sport. What's one of the hardest things about being a general manager that a lot of people from the outside wouldn't necessarily think about? Well, just, you know, you, you would think that it would be pretty straightforward in terms of, uh, you know, what you're working with and, and who you're working with and everyone's sort of on the same page, but that probably is the most difficult thing to try and make sure that everyone's on the same page uh, and moving towards the same goals. For a for an idea or a, or a vision that's that's bigger than them. So, you know, the the NBA players uh, come with them. Many people who are not necessarily part of the basketball organization, but are certainly influential and important in the players' lives. That that may or may not have the uh, vision to see the importance of the team success. So, oftentimes you're you're dealing with people that are counseling or encouraging a player to, you know, not maybe do the best thing for the team. And not that that's wrong, but uh, it does create a complexity to, to the situation that uh, maybe doesn't exist in other less high priced or high value uh, industries. So do you think that's kind of, so the, the Kawhi Leonard stuff is obviously at the forefront of everything right now in the NBA. Do you think that whole situation with uh, Uncle Dennis and everything happens a lot more uh, behind the scenes than people realize? It's just that it's a superstar now and it's kind of gotten out a little bit that this was something that's always been the case and um, diff, uh, superstars or just players getting pulled in different directions. And like you just alluded to, do you think this is just a far more common situation than uh fans and analysts and everything else uh realize i think it's fairly common yeah and i think this is just because it's such a great player so it's such a high profile situation that's de- developed with in a franchise that has not had these issues at least come to the forefront publicly uh, yeah. recently so i think that combination is uh makes it you know obviously much more newsworthy which job did you enjoy uh, being a GM uh, more uh, the Knicks or the Raptors? Well, I, they were both like they're both fun. It was different though. The, you know, the Knicks are obviously an established team, but to to come into Toronto uh, with an expansion franchise and really build it from the scratch uh, was was a lot of fun and very rewarding to see where it's at now and knowing that you were part of that uh, really mm-hmm. really was exciting. So to, so the. You know, building something from the ground up was 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 a great experience. I got to work with great people, Isaiah Thomas and John Bitove and Brian Cooper, who you may or may not know, but all these folks were just really, you know, working so hard and doing such great work, and uh, really, I think, launched the franchise in, in a very excellent fashion. You know, that uh, really sort of broke the, the mold from what other sports teams in Toronto were doing, and so to create our own identity, our own brand, our own sort of culture. And even though we, you know, struggle to, to be successful uh, at times, uh, it was uh, just really, uh, I think, well-established uh, from, from the get-go. What's your relationship with Isaiah like now? 
It's good. It's good. You know, we, we don't see each other as much and he's, he's still mostly in New York and it seems he's traveling all over the place, but, uh, yeah, he, uh, we exchanged birthday greetings the other day. So he's, he's going strong with the Liberty. He drafted a Kia nurse who's from Hamilton, Ontario, which is where McMaster university is. And his, her father, nice. Richard nurse is a you know, former great player, but he runs a prep school, uh, a high school prep school that uses our facilities uh, at times for, for Lincoln prep. So he's, he's involved in the grassroots level of basketball. That's, that's one of the things that is interesting in, uh, Canada as the, the grassroots basketball has really changed and the, the emergence of Canada based prep schools for, for high performing mm-hmm. athletes has really grown dramatically over the last four or five years. And that's where Wiggins came from, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you think it's going to continue to get bigger and bigger and we're going to see more of an influx of Canadian basketball players coming to the NBA in the next uh, five to 10 years? I think so. I think the, and uh, talking to the folks at Canada basketball, which is the equivalent of USA basketball. They project that I think we have what 18 or so Canadians of the NBA this year or this past uh-huh. season. They projected to grow to 35 or 36 based upon their own oh, wow. estimates. So, yeah. So we think, uh, you know, it's funny how certain areas of the country or the, or the, or the continent become hotbeds for development of basketball. It was Seattle has been such a, a strong developer for, of talent for, for so long and, you know, Baltimore and, and all those other places where you don't see as many from New York anymore for mm-hmm. some reason. So it's kind of funny how, how the basketball development across the, the continent works. And certainly Canada's on a roll right now with RJ Barrett coming out, uh, yeah. going to Duke next year and probably going to be mm-hmm. one of the top draft choices when he's done with that year. Have you watched a lot of RJ to this point or no? Uh, just on TV, I, I went down, we had the uh, under 18 uh, uh, North American uh, championships in St. Catherine, which is about an hour from Hamilton here. And I uh-huh. uh, watched a number, RJ did not play, but I uh, uh, did, did get a chance to watch some young, some talented Canadians. They unfortunately lost pr- pretty badly to the U.S. in the gold medal game, yeah. but uh but it was still very entertaining, and I think you know, future is pretty bright for Canadian basketball. How far? Uh, I guess how involved is uh, Steve Nash now in Canadian basketball? Well, I'm not directly involved myself either, uh, so I don't really know. But Steve Nash is on the board, I believe, and he's the, uh, I think he's the president of the men's program, uh, and there is a youth development program called Steve Nash Basketball, which is a skills development program for you know kids in grade school, basically to learn how to play basketball. So I think he's, he's fairly involved, but I, I don't know in detail uh, since I'm not mm-hmm. on the board anymore. Uh, Do you see yourself getting involved more with Canadian basketball or no? Oh, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, I always support it as best I can. Now, for example, there's a new uh, professional basketball league, uh, you know, minor league uh, mm-hmm. developing here called the Canadian league basketball league, which is going to launch, a year from this this past May, and uh, so we're working with them to develop a draft system for university basketball players uh, in Canada uh, to have okay. an opportunity to go on to to play basketball after their eligibility is done here. So, so I'm interested in helping basketball at all levels in all places. But uh, since I'm in Canada now, I, it's where I spend most of my time and effort. 
you brought up Seattle. And one of the things that I think is interesting is whether or not the NBA is going to expand from 30 to 32. Do you think as a you were at the forefront of the Toronto uh, experience in the 90s, do you think it's wise for the NBA to expand? And like what goes into just this expansion um, just situation that makes it complicated, makes it really difficult to thrive right away? Is that something that should happen? Do you think there's already a dearth of talent, top level talent, at least that it just, it may not be the best idea to expand now, or what do you think about expansion? In the oh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think expansion is well called for, I think. Um, and I think obviously Seattle is a franchise or a city that deserves a franchise. Uh, and then, you know, we talk about Mexico city, which to me is really an interesting question. I know we had so many difficulties here in Toronto where, you know, it was just a little bit different than the United States, even though, you know, Canada being primarily English speaking uh, would be, a, I think, a much more difficult road to hoe to expand to Mexico City and to make sure that players would be comfortable in going there. First of all, because it's so far away, you know, Toronto is relatively close to a lot of the major metropolitan areas in North America. Mexico City is a bit further and obviously a different language and a different sort of city environment that you don't often see in uh, in North American cities. So it would be a difficult expansion and, and overcoming those barriers for, for athletes. And I think, you know, winning and losing is a very important thing. And I think once we started winning in Toronto, the ability to bring free agents to Toronto was, was a lot uh, easier to do. But when you're losing and struggling as an expansion franchise is due, unless you're the Golden Knights, uh, it's uh, it's tough to attract players and, and doubles the effort that's required to try and and you know get your franchise back into into the playoffs in the first place and establish a winning culture. If you were Masai Ujiri this summer, what would you do with the Demar Derozan Kyle Lowry situation? Would you would you run it back or would you how would you approach it? Well, you're as a general manager, always exploring what the options are and what you think you might be mm-hmm. going to do. So he's, I'm sure he's at least looking at what other options are available if, if Demar or Kyle were able to be, be moved. But I would think it's more likely than not that they'll come back with the same group and uh, see if they can, you know, move things up for the better. They do have a lot of young players that contributed uh, a lot to, mm-hmm. the, to the team, and maybe those guys will get better too. Uh, they brought back back Van Fleet, which was, I think, a key key move. He's and and uh, so you know, I don't see them making a big change, but uh, you know, who knows? Uh, they've got a, I think, at least another year run in them, and and see with LeBron being out in California now, can they get over the top with against the other top teams, whether it's you know Boston or Philly or, or Washington, whoever might or might rise up in in the East now. Yeah. Do you think Mike Witchin should get another head coaching job or do you think it's going to happen? What do you think of all that? Well, I don't know. I, I think absolutely. He's certainly a, one of the best coaches I've been around and uh, just a good person and a coach that I think players react very well to. And his success, uh, you know, sort of speaks for itself. So I, I would, I would suggest that uh, any owner or, GM would be wise to at least talk to him when a opening occurs. 
And it seemed like he was a strong possibility of getting the IU job, right? Before they ended up going with Sean Miller's brother, Archie, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was lobbying for Woody for that job. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently I didn't contribute enough money as an alum, so my vote didn't count very much. (laughs) Well, who knows? Maybe in five years or something, uh, Woody will get one more shot at getting the IU job. You never know. Right, right. Um, Vince Carter or Chris Bosh, who do you think is the better all-time Toronto Raptor? Well, both great players, but I think Vince was, was the best player. I think, uh, you know, it didn't end so well for him in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think there's, you know, two sides of that story as well. So, uh, yeah, no, it's unfortunate the way it ended, but, but I think Vince was, you know, was a difference maker in all sorts of different areas, uh, in terms of not only winning on the court, but attracting other players and breaking through sort of that barrier, that television barrier where uh, teams in outside of the United States don't get a lot of play on national television in, in the United States. And because Vince was so popular, uh, you know, notwithstanding that uh, CBS or NBC didn't get uh, any credit for the ratings in Toronto, they still managed. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that's two separate TV deals. Uh, but so... So they they lose half the home market when when they're playing uh, a Canadian team. So that makes it huh. difficult for for a Canadian team to get up on national television. Interesting. But but uh, we were on the t- uh, on national TV when Vince was there as you know as much as we possibly could up to the limit, whatever that was, thirty or thirty five games. Are you surprised at all that he's still playing at this point, or did you see pretty early on that this guy's just his basketball IQ is too high and he's going to figure out a way to adjust later in his career when his athleticism um, kind of fades and he can find a way to kind of recreate his game? Did you see that just being a strong possibility for him? It was just like, this is somebody who's going to play in the NBA for a long time and he's going to just be a pro's pro. Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think his 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 intelligence and IQ and, and skill level has been always been underrated and, and dwarfed by his uh, tremendous athleticism. But I was, you know, worried for him back when we were together in Toronto and that he suffered so many injuries, uh, you know, that were not insignificant, you know, you know, the quadriceps tendinosis and, and teller tendinosis that can really affect a player that Vince was suffering from and sort of same thing. I think that what Kyrie Irving, uh, I was gonna, yeah, yeah. And, and Kawhi, right. And Kawhi, right. So, so these are all serious injuries, but he's, he managed to figure out how to deal with his body and to train properly and get proper rest and recovery and do the right, you know, leg work, uh, to, to maintain it. So good for him. And he's, he's still dunking even a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great to see. Uh, he's a great person and I'm very happy for him. Who's the most interesting player that you've been around that you really enjoyed talking to and just um, talking basketball with or life or whatever? Oh, there's, there's a lot of them really. A lot, so many good people in, in the NBA. Uh, you know, I enjoyed Charles Oakley a lot uh, when he was okay. together. We didn't, he, he didn't always see eye to eye with me, but uh, at least knew you're we getting an honest opinion from the man. And, uh, <laughs> For sure. And, uh, you know, he was a player's player, right? So he would, you know, even he would stick up for the players and you definitely get the player's perspective on things. So it was always good there, but, but Vince Carter was uh, a, a great uh, person to talk to, uh, you know, Alvin Robertson, even though that he ran into some difficult personal troubles and this 
made some mistakes was always struck me as a very intelligent and well-spoken guy and was surprised when he ran into those troubles. Um, but yeah, there's, there's all sorts of cast of characters that, uh, you come across in the NBA and it's, uh, it's a, it's a good group of people. What was the Jeremy Lin experience like, uh, being in the building and everything else during that time? What, are you going to remember stuff that happened during that run forever? Like what, um, what did you make of the whole Lin Renaissance in New York? <laughs> it was amazing. Like it was like a dream, uh, like the things that he was doing and sort of coming out of nowhere. Uh, we had, uh, sent him to play for our D league team, the Erie Bayhawks at the time, uh, to play up in Maine. And, uh, we sent him along with another player so that the player would have a, uh, a, a po- good point guard to play with him. And he went up there and had a triple double, uh, playing with Jerome Jordan, who was the big player that we were all right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he came back and I talked to Mike D'Antoni. I said, Mike, look, we've got to make a decision pretty soon here. I think it'd be great if we could give him some, some, some time on the court to see how Jeremy looks. He certainly did well up there. And, and Kenny Atkinson was an assistant coach with us at the time, was now the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. And he was working very hard and, uh, with, with Jeremy, you just saw him, well, developed really in practice and sort of doing the sort of the drills and the skills that needed would be needed in Mike D'Antoni's office. So when he got the chance, I think he came in against the Nets and, uh, just blew up against, uh, Williams, uh, the point guard for the Darren Williams, Darren yeah. Williams. Right. And, uh, and from there it was like, boom, off he goes. And, uh, you know, winning shots. And, and I remember walking out of the garden one time after a game where I think we beat the Lakers, was it? And uh, Hubie Brown was doing the game. And I said, Hubie, man, have you ever seen anything like this before? He said, no, <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. As I, I, I'm not doing a good Hubie impression, but it was just the way, you know, he said it like, yeah. you, you know, if he hadn't seen anything, it was pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. So yeah, it was a very special time. And you know, hopefully he gets over some of these injury problems he's suffered with yeah. over the course of time and it works out for him. He's in a good situation, like you said, with Kenny Atkinson in, in Brooklyn and um, hopefully he figures it out but uh, can stay on the court because he's a lot of fun and it's still a great story. Um, is there a trade or draft during your tenure that you just look back at it like, oh, I really nailed that one or um, is there like a, it, it could be a draft, it could be a trade, anything like that? Oh, you know, uh, the, the funniest one is the Pablo Prigioni one where, uh, okay. <laughs> I had been, I'd seen Pablo for many years over in Europe and I always thought, geez, this guy, sometimes he starts, sometimes he comes off the bench, but he's always talking to people and as always teams are winning, whether he starts or comes off the bench, he's a guy that's was just engaging his teammates. And I said, he would, and then you look at his skill level, you know, he wasn't the greatest athlete or the biggest person in the world, but, uh, he just knew how to play basketball. And I said, he would be an ideal second or third string point guard for, uh, for an NBA team. And I remember showing films every year to different coaches and Mike D'Antoni finally just threw me out of his office to say, <laughs> we're not bringing Pablo Brigioni. And I don't know why he, he didn't like him so much, but maybe I pushed it too much. But then finally, uh, I, Mike Woodson took over after, uh, Mike D'Antoni and, uh, I said, Woody, come on, look at this guy. And by the, this, this time, I think he might have been 34, 35. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he came over and just he, he made a big difference as as I had hoped he, he would. And uh, he was great. And uh, it was just funny that uh, by then he was I think he's still the oldest rookie in the history of the NBA. <laughs> and uh, so that's yeah. a little, little claim to fame that I have. There you go. And now he's a uh, I think he's on the coaching staff with Brooklyn now, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he'd make a great coach. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, which GM were you always like kind of? worried about when you saw the caller id and it was like it was this gm calling or was there anyone that you're like we're not doing a deal with them this is not going to end well for me like the danny ainge type where it's like okay this cannot end well if they're okay with this deal i need to reconsider (laughs) what i'm sending over was there any gm that qualified well it used to be jeff petrie for me uh who used to be with the sacramento kings years ago but but uh, you know i always i always loved talking to jerry west whenever he would call Cause he would tell you like, this is the way it is. This is what I think it is. He's not bullshitting at all. He's just saying what he thinks and <laughs> telling you the truth, yeah. why you should do this. And he was pretty much right. And so when, when Jerry first retired from, uh, the Lakers, the Lakers, yeah. I called him right up and I said, Hey Jerry, if you're ever looking to be a consultant or anything like that, I want you to please give me a call. I'd love to be able to, to have you work, help, help us here, figure this out. And, uh, yeah, he's very kind, but he uh, oh, you're gonna hung out for a while. All kinds of Knicks fans who are listening to this because they could have had Jerry West potentially consult. No, this was when I was in Toronto. This was when oh, I was, this was Toronto. So this was years okay. ago uh, okay. when he, when when Mitch first took over for him as the GM. Gotcha. in, in Lakerland. Okay, um, how do you think Mitch is going to do in Charlotte? Well, he's made some interesting moves already, and. Uh, you know, I, it's going to be tough, obviously, for any team. Uh, but uh, if they can get back to health, if they can, I think, play a little bit different. I thought, you know, they weren't playing sort of the modern NBA style. And they were taking a lot of two-point shots that probably, yep. uh, you know, weren't the best way to play with that group. Uh, but, you know, he's he's made some changes. Uh, you know, Bismack Biembo, when he was here in uh, in Toronto, was a very effective player. And, uh, you know, maybe they can figure out a way to put that group together to play a little bit better. They have a new coach. So we'll see. Yeah. Jay Triano is our uh, men's national coach here in Canada. He's the assistant coach there. So they've got a good assistant. I know that. He's been everywhere. Has he yeah. coached at every NBA team now at this point? He <laughs> has to have, right? He's been around a fair bit, yeah. But, uh, but he's a good coach. <laughs> uh, in fact, I sat in on a... Uh, coaching uh, clinic he gave the other day here up there in Canada did an excellent job talking about the NBA game and how it's played and how teams are adjusting for from on defensive schemes and things of that nature so did a really good job and I think he'll be a big benefit to the to the program there last thing and then we'll go do you ever see yourself getting back into the NBA as a GM executive consultant anything like that yeah definitely yeah I mean I I'm enjoying my stay here I've you know, had some success. We're breaking ground on an expansion project, and we've got the finances in order for at McMaster University. So we're poised for for growth now. But um, you know, if there were the right situation presented itself, I would certainly take a look at it. Perfect. Well, um, Glenn, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with me today. Nice talking with you, Chase. Have have a good rest of the day. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. 
I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.